Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rick Fanikak. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. My name is Raik van Nikark and in this podcast series I speak to leading investors in South Africa and we talk about investments and we also take a peek into their personal investment approach. We try to understand how they analyze investment opportunities, what shares they invest in and whether they have more hits than misses. And the idea is to identify a few golden nuggets of wisdom to help amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Lonwabu Makubela. He is a portfolio manager and the deputy chief investment officer at Perpetua Investment Managers. Before his appointment in these roles, he was the head of research at Perpetua an equity analyst at Stanlip and Alan Gray. He's a CA, which explains his love for analyzing stuff. Lon Wabu, thank you so much for joining me today. First of all, tell us about your background. Where did you grow up and when were you first exposed to the investment world? Good morning, Greg, and great to chat to you. Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Antata in the Eastern Cape. And I'd say probably from a young age, I was quite curious about business generally. I actually recall asking my parents to buy a Sunday Times so I could just read the Business Times. You know, I, I recall one of them kind of commenting, what am I going to do with it? And at the time, I, I had no idea, but I said, I'm just reading it. Like, you know, so there's probably just some curiosity around it. How old were you at that stage? I was actually nine at the time, I recall. So you were nine years old and started to read the Business Times in the Sunday Times? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that where your journey started? So then it's kind of at school, I probably say of the subjects, I certainly enjoyed the more quantitative ones, you know, but, but I'd probably add that accounting was probably where I excelled the most in, and that actually influenced me deciding to go and study, you know, accounting at UCT, which then actually resulted in, so I kind of went the CA route. I mean, my exposure to investing was actually going in articles, which I did at Ernst & Young, you know, where I had a couple of asset management clients plus some pension fund clients and actually the pension funds weren't actually a favored part you know by clerks to go and audit but I actually enjoyed it because it actually opened up my eyes you know to the world of investing. How old were you when you bought your first share with your own money I must quickly add? Yeah so I'd say you know it was then probably around that article so early kind of early 20s I guess when I came to a little bit of free cash and I recall kind of buying um, Kumba and Meteorex. Those are quite big contributors in my portfolio. And I guess the timing was right from the resources cycle as well. There were some structural changes and cyclical ones. But I actually recall then prior to that for Kumba, the iron ore price um, used to be fixed, you know, and then it went from that regime to a floating iron ore price. And it kind of went from $40 a ton to, you know, well north of, 150 you know so that was quite a big change for the industry and then resulted in kumba's profits i recall the share price you know that i paid for it was the dividend the following year you know so the timing was right from that perspective 
not many new investors actually hit the big time with their first investment, but that must have given you a lot of self-confidence. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. I mean, and it, it kind of, you know, for me then, it really the bug bit and it set me well on my way. You know, so in the process, I then actually then decided during my articles that I would then seek to join the investment field. And actually in my third year of articles, I, you know, I was in discussions with Alan Gray and I joined um, the investment team then. I think that was in around 2007. And you then became an equity analyst, obviously with your CA background. Is that a, a natural progression or a start of an investment journey? Because not everyone can do thorough analyses of shares. Did you ever think at that stage you would manage professional portfolios or retirement portfolios on behalf of people who are dependent on you for the quality of life post their retirement? I'd say for me at you know at that stage, certainly at the early stages, the idea really was to cement my identity as as an investor which is actually exactly what I got out of it. I'd say that the intention was absolutely to end up, you know, as I kind of analyzed more and got to know more, maybe, you know, grew in confidence. I certainly felt that the end game was to manage pension funds and retirement funds. But I recognized that along the journey that there'd be a lot to learn, you know, not just about industries. I think that was important to understand the detail of of the, the various industries that one invests in. And I'd say that's actually the science part of the job, understanding um, industries, etc. And then there's also the art part, you know, how to be an investor. And that was the second layer that I then had to grow and learn. And, and that's actually much harder to affect because it's not fixed and it's very behavioral, you know, and you have to understand, you know, how you think, you know. So to give you an example, you know, they call it effect and how you feel about something affects how you think about it, you know. So now you now have to understand not to allow your emotions to cloud your thinking, you know, for example, on a potential investment idea. Yeah, it's not easy to do, but I've spoken to many professional investors over the past few years in this podcast and I get the sense that most of them are happy if they can pick six winners out of every 10 investments, so it means they have six hits or positive performing investments and then four which do not perform as well. Let's refer to them as dogs. Do you believe that a hit ratio of six successes versus four misses is a good ratio, given the fact that you're a CA and you can analyze all of their financial statements to a T? You know, that just shows how fine the margins are in many professions the difference between being a winner and loser often it boils down to very marginal differences i mean i agree i've also heard that stat you know over time that six out of ten you know you would be in the top kind of in the top 10 percent of our profession and i guess that speaks to you know the high degree of assumption risk you know that we have in our uh, in our industry you know so when one is in a i'd call it a very scientific industry um, where the boundaries are pretty well known and pretty well set, you know, you typically would have a higher hit rate, you know, but in our industry, there's a lot of judgment, a lot of assumption risk that one takes into account. And consequently, it's not as scientific in, in that regard. 
Um, you know, so I, I would agree that that hit rate is roughly right. I think the key is that then you've got to recognize the second part of that is how much money do you have in the hits versus the losers, you know? And so I'd say that part of what's important in that equation is then to ensure that, you know, when you find the gems and that you, you bet large and you take bigger positions in those um, so that they can you know, have a bigger effect than just the six out of 10, but on a money-weighted basis, maybe you get closer to eight out of 10. And I'd say important to then minimize your losses as well on the four that arise. And I'd say those typically where your losses tend to be largest would be when company balance sheets, you know, run into trouble. You know, so we spend a lot of time kind of thinking about company balance sheets. You know, what are the liquid assets in them? What are the covenants? What can go wrong on the debt side? Um, does the business generate kind of enough cash just to actually pay down, you know, interest and debt, you know, that's due. So currency mismatches, you know, so companies that have dollar or euro liabilities, but RAND cash flows that can then go into trouble, you know, kind of look at things like, whether or not the interest is floating or fixed, because that can also influence the ability to pay down the debt and also look for kind of hidden liabilities. Often, you know, a good example maybe would be, I recall Breit a few years ago, they had a management scheme, incentive scheme, where, you know, the company had stood as a guarantor of management's debt, who then used that debt to buy shares in the company. But as the share price was falling, you know, then the company had to then execute that guarantee and the banks executed that guarantee. You know, so that was an example of a hidden liability, you know, that you have to then pay attention to the detail in the note. So I'd say definitely using that, you know, and I guess that accounting background and, you know, to try and minimize those, you know, losses that can come as a result of that. And then I'd say maybe another layer in terms of minimizing the losses it would be that, and it's typically true when you're buying in the deep value segment of the market, so where prices tend to be priced for an extinction. And I think generally people will know about uh, Benjamin Graham, who by many is considered as the father of value investing, but I'd say specifically deep value investing. And actually when he wrote his book, it was actually during the Great Depression, you know, so you can imagine the kind of opportunities that were coming up on his screens and many of them he was actually able to buy companies for less than the working capital on their balance sheet. Now, clearly those opportunities don't arise anymore, but in terms of minimizing losses, I would say that what we try to do now is to avoid companies that actually face structural changes. Not only is the value, you know, in, in deep value, but there's actually structural decline, you know, in, in such an industry. And probably a good example, I'd probably say would be a company like Telcom, where what's actually happened over time is that with fixed line declining, no matter what they try to do on other and mobile and infrastructure, et cetera, the reality was that the decline in fixed was so large that even though the share in many cases was trading on four or five times earnings, it wasn't attractive enough for that reason. Now, the Benjamin Graham book, The Intelligent Investor, was written back in 1949, if I remember correctly. But it's still been seen as a type of Bible for investors. But there are many young professionals or young people who would like to enter the investment market and to start their investment journey. 
they normally open an account. They start off with a few shares. But just what you've said now, it really highlights the importance of proper research. And if professional investors have six hits and four misses, what does that mean for amateur investors? What do you think would be a good hit ratio for them and what they need to try and achieve? That's such a very good question because the professional investor has got to swing a lot more than the the private investor, you know. So we obviously kind of do it on, on a day-to-day basis and as a result, we've got to um, swing a lot more times. And I'd say actually for the individual, you know, they've got to swing less, but when they swing, you know, make sure you connect, you know. So I'd encourage actually to think in terms of a much higher hit rate for the personal investor. And I'd say maybe things that would help and in terms of the research is buying things that one understands, you know, so that would be kind of helpful in their area of competence, sometimes maybe even in, in an industry that they work in, that they understand that they think, you know, the prospects are positive. And then I'd say equally important would be something I kind of learned over time is to actually use downturns to buy shares. In fact, even a simpler strategy is choosing the worst performing shares in a downturn, a basket of them. And, and so, so long as they're in a diversified enough industry, often you'll find that you'll get opportunities to make multiples of your money, even though you might pick some losers in that. You just need a couple to go right. Um, and then typically you'll look back and find that you've done well out of that. So I would definitely say like use the bull markets to, you know, to raise cash and build your savings and the bear markets to buy. Maybe slightly allied to that, I do think it is a useful strategy as well to have a long-term time frame in mind, you know, that if you can consistently be buying over a very long period of time, it actually becomes material when you look back, you know, in, in a decade, a decade and a half, that it can also become quite significant. You know, so I do think those are like some of the behavioral strategies an individual investor can use. Do you have a personal portfolio which you manage for yourself beyond the funds that you manage because I would assume the risk profile of a personal portfolio is a lot different to a portfolio or a unit trust aimed at long-term sustainable growth. That is correct and I do have a personal portfolio you know that I'm managing my behalf um, and you're 100% right I mean uh, maybe my wife wouldn't be very happy if she saw some of the you know, some of the names in there, but definitely a higher risk profile. And precisely, you know, I'd say the strategy there is that often I'm looking for companies with unrecognized growth. So they're trading very much as value shares that I think could then actually have an element of surprise to them. That's definitely part of the core. And then I'd say the second part would then be buying cyclical businesses during downturns, a basket of cyclical businesses during downturns. So some of the names and they're kind of a Brazilian payments company that I think has got long-term um, structural growth potential, some kind of a UK insurer that is exposed to China that I think has got some long-term growth stories in there, but it's priced like very much like a value share. Can you name them? So the one is Pug Seguero, Brazilian listed payments company. And really part of the story there is that electronic payments in Brazil are still a growing industry. Um, so it kind of under indexes relative to some other markets. And, you know, the number, I think number one or two player 
in that segment. So very much kind of growing and it's trading on less than 10 times earnings. I think part of the issue obviously is around what's affected them is maybe interest rates in the short term, you know, so that has squeezed their profit margins because, you know, they've got to raise funding in order to pay the merchants who use their services. So the cost of that funding has risen. But I think over time, as rates fall, you know, they'll get the, the benefit out of that. And then the other one was actually Prudential. Prudential's got quite large exposure in emerging Asia. Um, they're UK listed, but they were nothing to do with the UK. They're actually mostly businesses in, in emerging Asia and specifically China. So the share price got hit in recent years because of COVID. So they're quite reliant on selling medical insurance based in Hong Kong, but selling it to mainland Chinese, you know, so they obviously couldn't then travel during COVID and their sales got disrupted. So I think they'll still have a, a massive tailwind of demand. And again, it's trading very much like a value share on kind of a 7 8% dividend yield. So you practice what you preach. You look for those downturns and then as macroeconomic and probably micro conditions related to those companies improve, you'll pick the fruit. But now for the big questions. What was the best investment you've ever made? I know you bought Kumba and it ran quite well, so probably that is in the hat. But what is the investment you are the most proud of and the one where you have made the most money? I'd say for me, you know, the one that's had the best outcome monetarily would have been actually Johnson & Johnson, which you know, I've kind of owned for longer than a decade now. And probably the time when I bought it was trading on very low multiple and they'd actually just disappointed from, you know, one of the, some medical litigation at the time. And I recall actually Warren Buffett selling his shares saying that they had made too many mistakes. So sentiment was weak. And I'd probably say even amongst typically value investors, but I think what attracted me to the company was, you know, when I looked at their history, they had a history of uh, medical innovation that actually continued to then propel their earnings over a long time. They had 50 years of unbroken dividend growth. So as a result of the quality of the company, I was firstly able to deploy a reasonably significant quantum of money to it because I felt confident enough. And then, you know, it also coincided with the time actually when the RAND was very strong. You know, and since then, obviously, the RAND has weakened significantly. And then the rating on the company has also improved. So I've kind of held it, you know, throughout the time and will probably continue to own it for as long as possible. And precisely because the business generally tends to grow, kind of medical needs with society aging have increased. It seems like you like international offshore or foreign shares as opposed to local shares. Is your portfolio skewed towards the international market? So that's a good question because whether by design or, you know, by luck, it has become more skewed towards international shares. Generally speaking, I would say that, you know, for many South Africans, their largest asset is either, you know, if they already have worked, it's either the pension fund or if they're young and kind of entering the job market, I'd say it's the present value of their future earnings. And that's all in rands, you know, for most of us. And so I do think actually, you know, as a diversification strategy, you know, kind of buying offshores is a decent idea. It's not to say that local shares are not priced appropriately. I do think there are opportunities and actually one understands them quite well. Yeah, so there's also that portfolios there, but I'd definitely say it is skewed towards offshore. Then 
What has been the worst investment you've made? The one which you think back to and you said, why did I do that? Yeah, so, I mean, I can maybe speak, and I'll probably have to blur the, the lines between my individual and kind of professional experience, because I think there's maybe a better population size in the professional side. And I'd say that most likely great I'll look back and say it was probably my my worst decision for a couple of reasons, you know, that I can go into. But I'd say the first one, I probably would have underestimated the debt that was sitting in the business and the operational leverage. You know, so when often when you meet a, a cyclical business with operational leverage, the combination can be quite deadly. So, you know, exactly all the things I mentioned earlier about hidden liabilities, and maybe even at the end, I'd say that management incentives that were not an, aligned, you know, so the management team at Braid, for example, was incentivized on um, NAV or net asset value. And they charged a fee of that, you know, that went into the management structure or remuneration structure. And so they were incentivized to keep the net asset values as high as possible, even when I would argue it, it was clear that, you know, some of the businesses that they held were not valued in that way. So it's definitely a mismatch of incentives. And then I'd say, you know, the capital allocation was also another source of error. So, you know, Breit was a private equity company. They sat on the boards of the companies that they invested in. And one would have thought they had sufficient visibility to see that the performance was worse than what they had initially had hoped for when they bought the companies. And then actually what happened was, Braid kept putting in more money in those companies. So when, when I kind of got involved in, in Braid, I thought, well, you know, they're already trading at such a big discount relative to the, the worth of those assets. What I didn't anticipate was that they would continue to pour more and more money into those investments that I thought weren't worth what was written on the paper, you know, so the capital allocation definitely contributed. So in the end, I'd say the lesson would have been around incentives, management, capital allocation, and balance sheet. It shows you that even professional investors are human, and there are skeletons in many, many companies' closets. But as we've said earlier, hopefully the hits exceed the losses or the poorer investments, not only in number, but also in the substance of those investments. But we'll have to leave it there, Lonwabo. Thank you so much for your time today, and thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you, Eric, for the conversation. That was Lonwabo Maktrubella. He's a portfolio manager and the deputy chief investment officer at Perpetua. Show me the money. That was the Money Web. Be a better investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.